This is episode three of a series where I'm attempting to take a novel from ideas through the whole process of building a plot, first draft, rewrites, right through to a finished book. If you haven't listened to earlier episodes, I recommend you start with episode one. I mean, obviously, sorry, that sounds a bit patronising. I don't mean it to be patronising, but anyway, I'm just letting you know there's a link in the show notes of today's episode. I've also made a playlist on my SoundCloud page with all the episodes in, and I'll add additional episodes to it as they come out. Just search for Tim Clare or Death of a Thousand Cuts. I've called that playlist Writing a Novel. You can jump in and listen to today's episode without listening to the previous ones if you want, but it will make more sense if you start from the beginning. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. We have three scoops in our ideological ice cream sundae. Scoop one to help you write more. Scoop two to help you write better. And scoop the third would really have been better if I'd said scoop the first and scoop the second there to keep those terms consistent to help you be a little bit happier while you're doing those things. So to recap, at the moment, uh, I have this vague idea for a pulp fantasy adventure that I feel slightly more embarrassed about every time I say it out loud, because, you know, when you're actually sitting down to write something and make a podcast about it, the implication is this is so good. This idea was so good that I really wanted to get everyone on board so they can see this incredible thing being made. But that's not why I did it. I made the decision I was going to create this podcast before I came up with any ideas. And I just assumed that I would and I wanted to see what happened. And maybe in retrospect, that is a little bit arse backwards. But here we are. And I'm going to attempt to not continue apologising for what I'm doing. But in any case, our story is about a monarch, don't know their gender yet, who gets assassinated, then resurrected and sets out to solve and avenge their own murder. Working title, The Only Good King, although that may obviously change depending on how we decide on their gender later on and their general identity as well. Although I think they are going to be a monarch. I think that's pretty much that's pretty much penciled in. Uh, I don't think that's likely to change very much. Last episode, I hammered out a list of potential secondary characters, people in the kingdom, maybe conspirators, on the basis that I like the idea of the story structure being like a video game, you know, with themed levels, and each one has a boss who somehow typifies the area or ideology of that the area that they're in, and we kind of move through and we discover stuff about the kingdom as the character goes from place to place unpicking the mystery and probably killing people as they do so it, it, like, it seemed like a good way to world build uh, having never done it before I just imagined it would be perhaps it's not kind of gives us a tour of the nation and what it stands for and I guess by extension gives us a tour around our resurrected monarch's own legacy and their character and it will introduce them to some of the realities of their nation so I listed some ideas for characters you know rough archetypal sketches rather than detailed portrayals one thing I've said right from the beginning is I'm giving myself permission to be unoriginal, to be tropey, to go for familiar ideas and not get too hung up on, ooh, is this too similar to X? Has this done been done before? That kind of neurosis can be paralysing. You may have experienced it yourself, the epic high of the cool new idea that enters your head at three in the morning, followed by the crushing low, the disenchanting crash as you realise that yes, you guess you're basically just describing existing franchise Y or some book you didn't even know exists has already done something similar. It it reminds me actually of my favourite quote from Ringo Starr talking about the pressures of trying to be a songwriter while being in the Beatles. Quote, 
I won't do the accent. Quote, I used to wish that I could write songs like the others, and I've tried, but I just can't. I can get the words all right, but whenever I think of a tune and sing it to the others, they always say, yeah, it sounds like such a thing. And when they point it out, I see what they mean. End quote. I feel like that kind of casual dismissiveness about something sounding like something else is a bit rich coming from John Lennon and Paul McCartney, who both put 12 bar blues tracks on a be on Beatles albums. And the Beatles started life doing covers, you know, that was the done thing. That was how they cut their teeth, playing and playing and playing other, other folks' stuff, stuff that was literally such a thing, until it was in their bones. Um, but it worked out all right in the end for Ringo, of course. Uh, he eventually wrote Don't Pass Me By, which has the best couplet in any Beatles song ever. I'm sorry that I doubted you. I was so unfair. You were in a car crash and you lost your hair. Best of all those lines were later taken as evidence by Beatles conspiracy theorists that Paul McCartney had been beheaded in a motorcycle accident in 1966 and that I guess Ringo was sending secret clues to the world as to the terrible truth through his brilliant lyrics. Anyway my point such as it is, is that I think originality or the fetishization of novelty, as I'm going to rebrand it to make it seem less desirable, can be a pretty stifling thing to aim for during the creation phase of a pro project. Keith Johnston says as much in his classic book Impro, that improv actors can block themselves into silence for fear of not coming out with something sufficiently original. So at least for now I'm liberating myself from the tyranny of saying anything new. Uh, I should quite like to play around in the family fun pool of the familiar for a while. Now, now later on, I might tweak things so I'm not just doing empty retreads, but the idea is I hope, and I don't know how well this will work, but just to, when I'm coming up with ideas, not worry too much if it's something that already exists. And some writers never worry about that, right? For some writers, that's just not as important as the story they're trying to tell or it's not as important as the enjoyment the reader will get out of revisiting those things that they already know are cool. Um, for me, it has been, in the past, something that I worry about. I'm not sure that necessarily makes my stories original, but it's something that I consider a lot and that I have been a bit neurotic about. Look, my suspicion, and I don't know this, this is a hypothesis that I'm testing... But my suspicion is that my failings as a writer, my lack of skill as a plagiarist, will inadvertently introduce novel elements into the story. Uh, by novel, I mean, you know, original ones. Uh, I'm kind of hoping and banking on, really, mutations taking place, a bit like how evolution works, where genes aren't copied properly and occasionally the replacement works better for the environment. I'm hoping for some serendipitous mistranslations, if I can get wholly pretentious about it. I'm going to try and copy stuff that exists and I'm just going to be bad at copying and that's going to make it different. And I'm also hoping I can rise to the challenge of doing something good with familiar ingredients. You know, in a crowded marketplace with limited time where loads of writers have already told great stories with some of the archetypes and settings and plot structures I'm going to be appropriating, can I do a decent job? Possibly not, but I suspect I'll learn a few things by having a bash. There's a reason why these moves, these tropes, these ideas have become popular and why they persist. So 
Last time I took a character from my list, a priest or abbot or figure high up in the clergy, and I tried to figure out how I could make that archetype, that blank, vague sort of space a bit more interesting. And we've ended up with, and I should say these characters are all really placeholders, who knows how this will go and who will use, but we ended up with this spider-based church run by Mother Nidus, who may or may not be part spider herself. Who is she? What does she want? Why does our protag seek her out? And what happens? Don't know any of that yet. We'll come back to that later, maybe when we're structuring the plot. Don't, by the way, think that because I'm confidently saying, ah, we'll deal with that at the plotting stage, I in any way know what I'm doing. I don't. I'm hoping we can use some of the structure suggested by Michael Moorcock we looked at in the first episode, and we might look at some other ideas for structure. I know I've got a lot of books up, up on my shelves, actually. I've got the seven basic plots by Christopher Booker, a book that I found somewhat of a stretch I must admit he does cherry pick his stories as one might expect I've got I've got Robert McKee's story there as well I'm literally just looking at books in front of me and reading them the the spines to you Uh, that's a classic of the screenwriting book and again these kind of end up kind of massive mashing a lot of plot shapes I, I I'd be really interested in looking at the kind of classic Hollywood plot, the kind of Pixar plot. This isn't going to be this clearly isn't going to be a Pixar movie, but you know what I mean. And and seeing if we can learn something from them as well. I, I like the pulp plot structure, and we'll look at that. I like the three act structure, which is it sort of has similarities to. But I'm going to look at some of them, and then but I just I just whatever we do, I want to pick something, and dive into that and commit to it and have this kind of like these this scaffolding that we can paint the story around i think that's going to be fun and i think that restriction is probably going to really really help where do we need a twist where do we need the action to be building up to how many words should each chapter be all of that and what needs to happen what arc needs to happen from beginning to end of a chapter it's very going to be very pulpy Uh, there's going to be some hopefully um, pleasure of the familiar but hopefully we can look at ways of using that structure in interesting ways that, that's what I'm hoping for you know dividing the novel into four maybe if I use the more cocky thing with a climax at the end of each section and with some try-fail cycles and the old yes but no but and no but and no and no yes that kind of strategy of making every conflict count to sort of cobble something together I, I don't know yet we, we, we'll, we'll dive into that when we get to it but for now for today's episode, I'd just like to take another dryer's balls archetype stereotype from that list I bashed out last session of potential antagonists for our protagonist to go round, you know, interrogating or seeking revenge on or whatever. And they might be conspirators, they might be innocent red herring characters or clue dispensers, I don't know. But I just want to see if I can wring something a bit more interesting out of another one of those characters. Uh, to start fleshing out our world a bit I I, I think uh, I'm sorry I keep talking in this apologetic and jokey self-critical language um, and I'm wondering whether that way I'm talking about the process going I don't know what I'm doing blah 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 is is probably not very helpful aside from just massively increasing the runtime of this I know when I'm running workshops creative writing workshops I make a point of banning people apologising before they read out a piece they've just written. I say, look, 
let's just take it for granted that we've all apologised for what we've written and maybe we don't like it and we're sorry for inflicting it on everyone else. But I don't want to normalise us all saying that because this is an arbitrary set of conditions we're writing under. We wouldn't normally be reading stuff out. You're not imposing yourself on anyone doing this. We just want to be supportive to each other. We don't take your willingness to read something out as a declaration of your genius, as your way of saying to the rest of the group, hey, everyone, I've written something pretty special and you owe me a good old listen. That's not what it's about, but we'll be here all day if everyone apologises. And it kind of creates an apology arms race as well. Let's just normalise that we're all having a go. Be supportive. No one's expecting tears and bouquets of flowers tossed to them when they read out their first draft of anything. But neither are arrows going to rain down upon your head jeers and condemnation. So let's just assume that everyone has apologised. I'm blanket apologising to everyone. You know, a little bit of a little bit of a Jesus-like figure in that way, that I, I take the sins of the writing group onto my own back. That's um, early in today's podcast for the uh, blasphemy. I apologise. But look, what I'm saying, that's a very long-winded way of my saying, I remember, I remember going, when I used to do sort of exercise with, uh, a couple of friends when we used to go out uh, running in the woods and stopping every so often to do like chin-ups and log lifts and stuff and it was um, very chummy and sometimes we carried each other on our backs and it was a very sort of l- very lovely wholesome business and my friend uh, Michael I remember we were running there was three of us running and he kept going and we do an exercise and he kept going great well done and kind of clapping his hands when we'd finished a set you know he'd say nice work on to the next bit and I I suddenly realized that that's what he was saying to himself whereas my inner monologue by contrast was come on you piece of shit not to him to me I was going come on you piece of shit keep going don't fucking stop now don't fucking stop keep going and it was a revelation to realize some people motivate themselves through praise and encouragement rather than waterboarding themselves with hostility and self-criticism. Some people choose to be kind to themselves as a way of motivation, not because they think that they deserve it, or that's part of it too, but because it works to drive them forward. And, And that's what they do. And I was like, oh, oh, there's different ways of approaching this. So I'll try not to mediate my feelings of uncertainty and exposure here with too much self-deprecating humour from this point on because, I I don't know, I just want to model, you know, a writer being okay with being reasonably nice to oneself. You know, not bombast or showboating. I'm not going, whoa, look at me. Welcome to where the magic happens. I'm just not reflexively crapping on my own efforts as a form of self-defense and as a way of lowering my status preemptively in case someone goes, Tim, what you're writing's rubbish. You're not a real author. You're not a capital A author. You're just a writer. You There's not a hard line separating you, a professional, with listeners who might be writers who aren't professionals and I would say yeah 
That's true. <laughs> Fucking welcome. That's yes. Yes. That's absolutely true of everyone. Every author hard. There's no, there are no masterclasses. There are no hard A professional authors. We're all approaching. There's all, we all step into a world of uncertainty every time we start a new story, especially the less it is like our previous ones, the more we do that. We don't know whether it's going to turn out all right. So if you think I sound exactly like you would sound doing this, yeah, that's because we're pretty much the same. We're peers, you know, I'm not a teacher kind of like handing down great truths graven on tablets of stone. It's just, this is what writing is. And it will always be like this to a certain extent. doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it it can be a bit complicated. And look, you never know. Things can go better than you expect. How's this going to turn out? I don't know. Will my strategies work? I don't know. It's an experiment. Me and my daughter, who's four, were doing some science experiments last night, putting different fruits in the bath and seeing which ones floated. And I was trying to explain to her, despite not having a background in the sciences, being an arts student, but I sometimes, you know, feel like I want to, if not cross the floor, then at least tip my hat to my colleagues across the floor. I tried to explain to her that in science, you know, you come up with a hypothesis, you formulate an experiment to test that hypothesis, then you see whether the hypothesis was confirmed or disconfirmed. But as we discovered, and I found this genuinely exciting, you know, when you find out your prediction was wrong, that doesn't mean the experiment was a failure. On the contrary, those were the coolest moments when I made a prediction, when my daughter made a prediction, and we were wrong. That was the, those were the bits when we went, wow, or we clapped our hands, or we laughed. We learned something when we made those mistakes. It was brilliant. Anyway, I think today I fancy having a crack at brainstorming some ideas for this Admiral of the Navy character. Someone I imagine is actually based in a floating city of some description. Either a, a levitating island or an actually mechanically or magically flying fortress. There's no big thinking behind that, except I think flying islands and airships are cool, and I try and include them in everything I write. I like old science romance with with the physics that doesn't quite work. Massive flying platforms held up by a bunch of propellers, land masses surrounded by clouds, where in real life everyone would have frozen to death or probably suffocated. As humans, I, I think we're just hardwired to be awed by height and scale. No part of our evolution prepared us to be looking down from the clouds. Everything about it bypasses our intellect and speaks directly to our bodies. Even in a story that maybe has corrupt people and empires and war and all that kind of nonsense, there's something optimistic about the sky. And I think I want to engage with that feeling, even if only for contrast. I like the idea of this character... This antagonist having a distinct domain to, you know, a rival base of power. There's something very feudal about that. Many of these antagonist characters are the equivalents of uh, dukes or nobles. And while their loyalty is putatively towards the monarch, you know, that person is also really the only figure who can consistently overrule them. So who knows? So I'll time myself and sod off now to do 20 minutes of brainstorming like I did last week, just coming up with, well, last week I listed some potential names for the church Mother Nidus presides over, then I elaborated from there. I think this time what I want to do is a rapid-fire list of potential character quirks, because the archetype is this big barrel-chested figure with a handlebar moustache, perhaps a monocle, a shiny tunic and a chest full of medals. That's what we think of when we think of the Admiral. 
stomping around being blustery and xenophobic, right? A member of the Empire Old Guard, a bluff traditionalist. And sure, we can borrow elements from those tropes, but I just want to see if we can list some other things that might add interest. Like in Roger Zelazny's Chronicles of Amber, for example, I've mentioned this before, but at one point the characters have a sword fight. That's not original, and he doesn't deny his readers the pleasure of the sword fight just because it's a familiar part of the sword and sorcery fantasy genre. But he does have the sword fight take place on horseback underwater. So the familiar mixes with the unfamiliar, and we get something that's just a little bit more memorable. Terrific. Okay, I shall pause the recording and return to you in 20. Incidental music break. 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 Okay, so I did it. Here's what I got. The Admiral could be two people instead of one. I love pairs. I love double teams. I love I love it when there's, you know, two sidekicks kind of maybe some odd point of protocol meant that the position was split and the two of them now hold it. I like it when two people are physically distinct two you know that's just like a trope i like one short one lanky for example even if this doesn't work for this character it could be used elsewhere one location home to a pair that function narrative wise as a single entity the admiral could be an incredible duelist you know could be with swords but maybe flintlock pistols or uh some super naval thing like uh, trident duels lots of parries and counter moves where you catch the tines of your opponent's weapon and you do this sharp twist to disarm them i imagine trident fighters would need powerful wrist and forearm muscles for those moves as well as strong deltoids for javelin style long range throws of course dueling tridents would be blunted for normal competitive purposes but the moves apply in normal combat the Admiral could be an absolutely fanatical hawk, you know, barely constrained by advisors, glowering down upon the kingdom, known for insane gambits that squandered whole squadrons, yet they're equally unperturbed about their own safety, standing on the gun deck during air battles, smoking continually and barking at anyone who dares to contradict them. They've never liked the monarch and make little attempt to hide their contempt for almost everyone but they presided over a military success and so have proven impossible to dislodge in this instance taking down the monarch by guile or stealth would probably not be their style they openly oppose people they don't plot and they aren't good at cooperating with others only giving orders so they might have absolute reason to be a suspect they might profit from the monarch's demise yet not have been responsible the admiral might have a pet chimpanzee that they dote upon the Admiral, after chemical injuries sustained during the war, might need a complex apparatus, including bellows, to breathe. The Admiral could be an obsessive inventor and scientist, continually working on new technology to overcome gravity. War is an inconvenience to them. Politics a set of circumstances that make research either more or less feasible. But there might be certain colonial resources or military budgets that are important to them as sources for continuing their research for which no amount of funding could ever be enough. The Admiral might commune with the ghosts or ghosts of slain sailors through a lens or looking glass, seeking their counsel before going to war, keen to avenge them. 
The Admiral might continually pick from exotic hors d'oeuvres strewn in dishes about their mansion. The Admiral might be obsessed with punctuality and timetables and their movements might be rigidly predictable. The Admiral's floating island could be a, a weird bastion of tradition. You know, the houses all built in a style popular 50 years ago, the plays and operas in the theatre, all old pieces written during the war. It's like a, like a time warp. The Admiral might have a pit or well built into the bottom of their house through which they can drop those they think are traitors off the island to their deaths. The Admiral might drink regularly at a large tavern with several floors which functions as their office and home from home. There they might be surrounded by loyalists and between music, boxing and entertainment they sometimes hold court to an adoring audience. How then could the protagonist get to them when this character is almost always surrounded by supporters. Maybe the Admiral is a quiet, reserved character who barely eats, who lives a life of self-denial and abhors any sign of indulgence or complaint in others. A drawn, wan person, they are disgusted by the decadence of the monarchy below and continually alert that that nation's neighbours will train a better military and conquer the soft cosmopolitan weaklings the citizenry have become. Maybe the Admiral wears a motley made of scraps of the coats of every sailor who has died on a ship under their command. So that was what I got um, out of these. I'm not sure what I think. Maybe a good test is to consider what gets me most excited. Uh, maybe that's a bad test as well. I don't know whether you need to leave stuff to bake. What I even feel a little spark about. Got to say I like the Trident thing. Um, maybe that's a bit superficial, but I don't remember seeing or reading a trident, trident fight recently. It's not really a personality, fights with trident. It's not our motivation either, but it's nautical and different. Although I'm not really sure tridents make sense transposed to a Sky Navy, because they're for spear fishing originally, right? I don't know whether that's true. But I'm pretty sure a trident could have some utility during a boarding action. It could help resist a charge. It could let you block and thrust in a battle on deck. It has short range for throwing. You know, I guess like tridents could be in part a status thing in the Navy, like a dress sword. Or, or maybe this is just the Admiral's thing. You have to be in pretty good shape to heft one efficiently, certainly. So maybe they have a whole sparring room with them bracketed to the wall. Uh, or one amazing incised steel trident hanging over the fireplace. And if our monarch is made of the equivalent of wax... They could potentially be in a fight pitchforked and bull-rushed back into the wall or speared to the floorboards or picked up and tossed like a bale of hay. That would be a cool moment to me. Um, I like the business with the ghost lens, uh, but it might make the relationship between life and death too complicated in this story. The idea that our admiral is a, is a frothing warmonger is, well, look, it works as a trope. It has existed in stuff, but I'm not sure I care for it that much. You know, it, it seems too easy, a bit boring. I, they must be destroyed. It it, see, it it pairs too easily with the idea of an admiral with someone in control of the army to have them just be this hawkish warmonger who desperately wants to go and conquer the world. War person loves to war. Maybe I'm being overly critical. Maybe I'm overthinking it. I don't know. I like the idea of there being absolutely, resolutely unafraid, like genuinely indifferent to their own safety in a way that makes other people around them terrified. And maybe they expect that indifference to danger of others. But when we see them in combat, I, like, I would it be cool to see them back that up with competence. Maybe up here on the floating island, you know, there could be a veterans hospital. I don't know 
how we work that element into the story yet but i suppose the balancing factor of this person if they were like this warmonger kind of character is that they look after the sailors who suffered because of the wars they look after people who have been injured in the wars who the world below wants to forget because it's inconvenient because it doesn't fit with their narrative I like the idea that the Admiral, and by the way, I don't know the Admiral's gender yet, only that I imagine they're pretty built, they're pretty buff, they're pretty big. I like the idea that they have an observatory. Observatories and big telescopes are always cool to me. Maybe they have a telescope that they can use to observe the world below. And what with the sky docks, there might be a little mercantile and banking district, a little bit of trade that can go on, maybe without the same restrictions as down below, you know. These are okay flavour ideas, I suppose. I suppose the only my only issue is that none of these really spark stories or problems or scenes. The Trident sparks a potential style of fighting, but that's about it. Um, maybe the Admiral likes to hold contests of martial ability. That potentially creates an interesting scenario for our protagonist to encounter them in or a way for the protagonist to sneak into the area um, maybe they keep a vast aviary on the top floor of their mansion full of huge exotic birds or drakes and dragons which whip through the sky so maybe small cat-sized messenger dragons maybe called drakes in this because i mean mainly it's just an alt alternate name for dragons that a lot of fantasy readers know though maybe maybe it's not worth changing the name in some stories drakes and dragons are distinct in some they're not it might just confuse readers or non inside baseball readers i don't know could be cool the admiral receiving messages from his, from their pet dragon or pet tiny drakes you know if the flame drake like breathes fire that's a nice obstacle for our protagonist who's made of wax you know that's vulnerable to heat that could be quite a good balancing factor i don't know um what else uh one thing that occurs to me hmm, this might be a plot hole it might not you know i can <laughs> you, you can hear the not terror in my voice but that slight beginning of concern because this is often where a the this is often the moment where the euphoria of the idea uh, goes off a cliff for me is when I go well hang on how about this exception or problem and of course one way round these things is to just go well the reason that such and such a thing is true in this world is because otherwise there would be no plot you can kind of just well look I mean like here's the thing let's not let's not beat around the bush if this monarch, this king or queen or monarch, comes back and they look like themselves, we're presuming they're the, the, the wax version of them is a replica, why don't they just go, your king lives, or queen, or, or, or whatever, you know, and rally their loyal followers, of, of whom you would assume there would be some, around them, and, and, and go after their enemies that way? Wouldn't that be the most obvious course of action? And I don't think you can just hand wave it by having them go, no, that would be too obvious. Their foes would go to ground. They had to be subtle. Like, I don't think that... I, I, I often see that in fantasy, especially very long fantasy books. And it always makes me think that the person planned what they were going to do 
and then started writing it and then either themselves or an editor went well, why doesn't the character just do this obvious thing and instead of writing a better more logical plot where the character it, i think in plotting it's always really good uh, it's always really good to see characters make smart choices or make the best choices available to them. I was talking on the previous episode about post the old version of Postman Pat, where he has poor resources, and or, or at least he has limited resources and small problems, and he uses and he uses his ingenuity to get around small problems. Versus the new Postman Pat, where he's got a helicopter, GPS, and so to create tension, he just has to be bad at his job. And that's a much less entertaining experience. You can kind of do, you can do comedy around characters making poor choices or being incompetent. You know, like the Mister Magoo cartoon. He's not. I mean, he's not exactly incompetent. He has limited insight because he's partially sighted, but doesn't have insight into his own condition. And then he lives in a world where where he's preternaturally lucky fortunately otherwise of course mr magoo would be an incredibly dark and tragic cartoon if he was partially sighted lacked insight into his condition and was just walking out into traffic and getting mangled but of course mr magoo will walk out into traffic and all the cars will narrowly miss him but then i'd argue mr magoo is not actually the protagonist of his own cartoons if you don't if you haven't watched the Mr. Magoo cartoons, this is going to be somewhat opaque discussion. Uh, but Mr. Magoo, I would argue, is not the protagonist of the Mr. Magoo cartoons. It's always whoever his antagonist is, whoever's trying to thwart Magoo or protect him, perhaps. You know, sometimes he's just like a bit like a bit like Baby's Day Out, Home Alone Three. All the all the all the uh, super super relevant contemporary cultural references here but where there's just a baby crawling around and the baby is oblivious to it, the danger it's in and so other people are trying to save it you know that's when you have a super incompetent character they then the whole plot can kind of just be an escort mission it, it you're where that person is almost like the MacGuffin, almost like the ring that you're trying to get to mount doom they're just a person who gets into fixes and the other characters inspector gadget was another example of that it was an incredibly frustrating cartoon to watch watch as a kid because he had all these amazing gadgets and then his enemies were incompetent and he was incompetent and so the protagonist of inspector gadget is in fact his niece penny and her dog brain brain has to cover up the inspector gadgets lack of skill and his obliviousness and it's uh, because of that it's not a totally satisfying cartoon because he's got all these cool gadgets but he never really really makes use of them anyway so what i'm getting around is like i think you move into that territory whenever you hand wave something and have a character think of the most obvious way out of a situation and then dismiss it rather than you're leaning into that even having them try it and have it fail have a major problem come up make the stakes against them harder so they are denied it rather than have them just go uh, and, and so here's the, that's the problem right i've got here 
is why wouldn't the person try? So, so I've sort of, in a way, I've suggested my first possible way back here, which is a little bit of a try-fail cycle where they try doing just that and it fails for some reason. Now, obviously, they can't be too successful. Otherwise, they've gone, I'm alive and people see them. And now it's known that the king or queen has been resurrected and and then the whole dynamic of this story changes. So a couple of possibilities spring to mind. So first I could make it so a few years have passed. I was kind of like thinking that. I like the idea that, part of the, that there's been some changes to the kingdom. There's been some updates. How lovely would it be if the first chapter was in a kind of pseudo sword and sorcery medieval thing? Uh... You know, well, at least five years have passed since the monarch's death. How lovely if there'd been some new technology introduced, if there were some clear changes to the kingdom, if enough time had passed that elements of it were novel to the protagonist themselves. They, it might not have felt very long from their perspective, because time passes differently in the world of, of the dead. But I quite like the idea that, especially because I like, not sti- not sort of, talking about steampunk but the kind of science romance genre I like that so yeah that could be that that could be one thing so a little bit of time has passed so the death has been assumed maybe not everyone you, you know just so no one's gonna be looking out for the king or queen being alive that's not expected and it would be a bit weird for them to be alive um so the idea that they would be look like the age that uh, that they were when they were past would be ridiculous they wouldn't be convincing as themselves secondly I, this isn't an age of television and photographs so they're not actually ubic their face isn't ubiquitously known in its true form right you know few people have seen the monarch i would imagine except in coinage or in a stylized portrait so even if the sort of dishevelled figure in commoner's clothes does bear a resemblance to the to the assassinated king or queen or whatever, you know who the hell would believe them? They're gonna. I think they're gonna look significantly different. In, in you know enough to be like, oh, you kind of do look a bit like them, but it's just such a ridiculous claim, especially if resurrection isn't common, right? They just seem like a mad person. In fact, you know, a common madness. He's probably, you know, there's probably been plenty of people who believe that they are the ex-queen or, you know, possessed by that per- the, the ex-queen's ghost or something. So maybe we could have a mini trifail cycle where the, where one of the first things they do is like, they find themselves, they go into a tavern or whatever and they say, look, I'm the king. I've come back. I had to reclaim. And there's already a patron. There's already a regular in the bar who claims exactly the same thing. And... Maybe people are like, oh, you do kind of look like them. Um, but why? It's just such a bizarre... It You know, it'd be like walking into a bar in the UK and saying you were... Win- saying I'm Winston Churchill. It would just be... It would be that level. Or maybe, maybe a bit closer. Maybe sort of Margaret Thatcher. I don't think anyone in the UK would walk into... Would walk into a bar. But, well, there's probably are some bars in the UK where you could do that and get a reasonably good reception. But I, I imagine <laughs> that would, would not go down. Well. And you know what? Like, actually, that would be interesting. Now I've said that out loud. It's lovely how ideas can kind of spill out like this. But 
it would be funny for the king to go in and or queen or whoever they are to go in and and claim it and have a couple of people react hostilely partly because they don't believe that this is you know that they are who they claiming to be but also because this this monarch was not as maybe as not as popular or certainly not within with the patrons of this bar than they thought they would be and they realize that just announcing to anyone i am your king is not necessarily going to be re- received with open arms that they might be they might get beaten up if people people might attack them if they really thought they were the king or queen and also they're not anymore you know they've been usurped taken over by whoever their successor is so that's that could so there's ways around it but i think the way to do it is not just have the person dismiss it in their heads we have to actually see them try and play that out that's what i think but the people closest to the monarch you know to our protag would would realize the truth right they might not believe it at first but Especially those who believe, who understand that such a thing might be possible, and especially when they're able, the our protag is able to deliver to them some stuff that only the king or queen or monarch would know. I think that would be cool, and they'd be like, "It really is you, oh my god!" Or you know, the first time they tried to stab them, and it just like thunk, like sticks into them, and the person isn't killed. They're like, "And maybe you are who you say you are." And it does mean also that the monarch's existence, their resurrection, albeit probably only temporary resurrection time limited, is a liability to the conspirators and those who, you know, displaced our protagonist, you know, because this person knows that they were assassinated and they are also alive, which kind of wrecks the whole succession thing. So suddenly there's a motivation for the antagonist to dispatch the monarch themselves, maybe alone. You know, this is why they might not always call all their guards in or call the city watch or whatever, or rally the army necessarily. You know, one or two of them might, but you can understand why not everyone would be motivated, would would want to do that straight away. And also it might be a, a good reason why they'd be motivated to interrogate the protagonist before getting rid of them you know asking things like who sent who sent you because they know this person's come from somewhere and maybe through that interrogation we get a sense that the alliance between conspirators is breaking down that these people who seem to be in league you know don't totally trust each other are getting paranoid you know through and through these interrogations who sent you you know and I I think you know you you wouldn't want every single person that the protag goes to visit to tie him or her up and or them up and say you know who sent you but you could have it at least one of them do it and we might get clues as to what the original plot was if they're like it was such and such wasn't it then through the questions asked we start through through the art of reverse inference we start to get a sense of what who they should go and see next and so actually i think i'll say this now i i have an idea for the twist at the end of the third section this came to me after recording the first episode so my idea that i suppose i'm it's not set in stone but it's what i might be working towards so so one of the conspirators probably the last of the group that the monarch confront fronts is actually the one 
who resurrected, who was behind the resurrection of the Protag, who was ultimately behind that. And they've resurrected the protagonist deliberately to get them to murder all the other conspirators. And which we kind of think, well, that was maybe that was a little bit fortunate that you kind of worked your way through them in that order. So at first we might think, well, this is to get rid of all your rivals. But then in a final reversal, we learn that this person, and I'm thinking it could either be like the Chamberlain or maybe the person who, who replaced them, although that's too obvious. So maybe the Chamberlain, maybe maybe someone you wouldn't necessarily be the first person you'd expect. But this person got the king or queen or monarch to murder all the other conspirators but then expects them to murder them too to actually kill the person who resurrected them because their plot isn't to gain power but it's to bring down the monarchy and the nation as a whole uh not because they're kind of like and I think it's important that they're not just like, I want chaos, chaos. Yeah, because then, well, also just partly from my perspective, then the story ends up being a story about how, you know, like the monarchy is the least worst system we've got, guys. Like it's either the monarchy or anarchy and chaos. Then it just becomes like a, it, it becomes like one of those like right wing action thriller movies where the hero has to like where anarchists get a nuclear bomb and are like we want to blow up the country because america sucks Woohoo! and they're like smoking pot and and wearing tie-dye and you're like i don't is this a thing and it's like this is why we need the military because people who say they want anarchy actually don't mean that because my, my experience of anarchists is that generally they, they they just sort of are selling you um, vegan banana bread and they'd quite like us to organise ourselves through kind of like communes and stuff like that and maybe not have the police force. That's their, that's their you know, and have communities policing themselves. That's mainly, and they want lots of meetings as well. That's generally my slightly stereotyped experience of anarchists but in these movies um anarchists are all actually always want they're always kind of joker style figures who who just want to watch the world burn um because because they've been corrupted by liberal universities so the problem is like if i have the fine if the monarch goes through killing all these people who took them down realizes that the monarchy isn't so great you know that their country isn't the greatest they thought and then they finally meet this person they're like and now you've got to kill me and the whole country will fall it's all i want is just to see the monarchy fall because i'm a nihilist and nothing is important to me and i just want to see everyone die because if you don't have a monarchy then the only alternative is for people to be burned alive right that's like super dumb and, and and like there are plenty of stories i like that i don't agree with the politics in um a good you know a case in point being the manga of akira i've interviewed uh katsuhiro otomo when i used to be a total weeb and be a manga and anime reviewer 
and K horror. Cool. Yeah, I used to do that. That used to be my. That used to be a thing that I did, and um, I remember reading Akira and being like, "Oh, like this is this actually reads as quite right wing." I don't know if this is deliberate, and and, and actually, given you know having seen Steam Boy since, I think there's a, a big streak of sort of pacifism in Katsuhiro Otomo's work but like definitely the, whether it's intended or not the undercurrent of Akira is a kind of crypto nationalism and sort of military nationalism and, and and a kind of nod towards kind of like kind of some of the values of military Shintoism really like I'm not going to go into this too far. If you haven't seen Akira, then you won't. This will leave you even more cold than my discussions of Mister Magoo, the the two classic comics, <laughs> Akira and and Mister Magoo, uh, the two genders. Um, but <laughs> that in Akira, it's it's a story about. So it's about so many things, but it's set in Neo Tokyo, and there's there's some there's a secret program developing psychic powers in people, and one of them, Akira, is is essentially a kind of nuclear bomb in child form, and and the story really just valorizes the, the, the democracy, the government are just. Uh, a series of entrenched interests squabbling with each other and the real the real active and and immediately when things start to go wrong in Tokyo we see and this is in the manga not in the anime but um, we see international interests start circling with the intent of essentially carving up japan for themselves they're gonna like just just rock work just 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 rock up and take over and and you can see this there's this kind of like post-war resentment in this story this is kind of like done in the, the late 80s and we then sort of see the the character who is the character who's the most active who is able to take the best decisions is the colonel who basically becomes like a kind of wandering ronin who just goes just goes maverick and starts wandering around with an orbital space laser just shooting people just going i'm 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 not gonna there's no chain of command anymore i'm just gonna walk around (laughs) nuking people from orbit and he he's not and he's no longer hamstrung by the competing factions of government by democracy basically and he then makes only wise moral decisions and then at the end there's a kind of youth revi- a nationalist youth revival is implied as as the you know kids find their fighting spirit and um it's pretty, you know, like I don't have to tell you that that is pretty problematic, and, and, and we see it in something like Watchmen, right? 
that in the end do stop listening by the way if you haven't seen or read Watchmen and you you want to preserve skip on by about five minutes because that's probably uh, knowing my ability to circumlocute that probably be how long it would take me to get through essentially a sentence of exposition but at the end of the well it is not even at the end but the character of Rorschach right he he is sort of proven right by the story Rorschach doesn't believe in in you know in the rule of law because he thinks essentially it's exploited by criminals and a justice system based around you know money you know money and lawyers and all, all sorts of entrenched interests that mean that guilty people are are either not caught or not sent to prison and they're not sufficiently punished and nobody really cares because it's corrupt and it serves the people in power that's his his beliefs and and by the way like not all of that i disagree with uh certainly in in you know many ways the justice system doesn't work in the real world right i that's, I, I don't think that's even controversial but his way of dealing with that is to become a vigilante hunting down people and murdering them and now in the story he's you know picking like depraved psychopathic serial child abusers and murderers right so these are like it's just it's so you know he's hitting it in the middle of the bat these are easy say easy targets but these are sort of morally unambiguous targets but crucially within the the reality of the story never challenges him It, it never posits Alan Moore never has the story and Alan Moore by the way has described Rorschach sort of extra textually as a fascist if he was in real life right his his beliefs are fascist but and I think you know I, I think this is links to Akira really because that you know that kind of level of kind of crypto fascism that I think my, is un, is indeliberate. I don't think either text is, was written as a endorsement of fascism, but it's, what I'm talking about is why you have to be careful and why I'm being careful here, is that the, the reality of the world, ne- in the reality of Watchmen, Rorschach is right. He's ultimately killed by his colleagues to stop him exposing a deliberate kind of mass murder because they feel that the benefits of this mass murder that he that the cold war is essentially going to be over because humanity has decided to come together to protect itself against an entirely fictional alien menace who who by the way you know it's clear to the reader will never show up again unless you can unless you (laughs) unless you continue to precipitate fake bombings of cities it's gonna become clear that this hasn't happened even if without the fact that Rorschach has written a diary exposing the fact that it was a scam so so there's there, there's that so Rorschach is, is, is within the reality of the story Rorschach is right he believes in truth he believes that that's important and w- that we shouldn't base things on corruption and the others don't and he eventually gets killed but also he's never ch- his, his policy of extrajudicial murder 
he's never challenged by the reality of the story as far as i remember like i he doesn't he doesn't get the wrong person he doesn't kill the wrong person we're never invited into the and the people we see him kill it you know hunting down we never they're all just unredeemable monsters there's we don't get any backstory we never see any sense of humanity in them we're not invited into their humanity the rea- in the reality of the story he's right and when you tilt the floor of a story in that way then it's very difficult for it not to become an endorsement of that character's worldview when you tilt the floor when instead of having a, a kind of fictional dialectic if one character prevails then the story is necessarily elevating their opinions and their worldview and what i'm saying is if the irrede- if the kind of if the kind of if if the bad guy in this if the baddie is sort of a cackling villain who wants to tear everything down and our hero or our protagonist i mean i'm starting to use loaded terms already confronts them and our protagonist is is the ex-monarch and then they're like you've done everything i wanted you to and now i'm gonna tear down the monarchy like the story must perforce be a kind of apologia for the monarchy right in the same way i was sort of reading like the historical defense of of rotten boroughs in england so rotten boroughs in case you don't know were in parliament there were seats that had in sort of victorian england there were seats in parliament that were part of that were voted for by rotten boroughs so these were boroughs that had so few votes for that mp sometimes like nine or something but certainly like often and often that mp all the people voting for for them in that area were their tenants so they paid rent to this person this was their landlord but basically the the voting role was so small that you could buy off the entire borough and you could bribe people to vote for you and therefore if you were wealthy enough you could buy a seat in parliament and they were handed down through families a notable uh, MP who was a and, and and you know this is weirdly one of the elements of like voting reform was you know people like Clive of India these nabobs coming back from having plundered India through the East India Company and then coming back with money and buying their way into parliament and these were like first generation this was like new money and this was the point where elements of england were like maybe this rotten idea isn't such a good idea because they were because they were like oh because like anyone could buy their way in with money it's not just bloodlines now but one of the defenses of them was actually this creates stability because we can make sure that people with money or like families can hand seats to each other and we can make sure that the right people are in parliament 
I guess I can't even remember how I got into that to begin with. Except, oh yeah, so so the point is, if I end up doing an argument, then I, I could end up making a similar argument by accident with this story, which is kind of like, well, look, essentially becoming a... I mean, I don't mind. I probably am. I probably am actually, in my politics, a... I tried to hold all my political and ideological ideas loosely so I can consider other people's positions. And I know that makes me contemptible in some people's eyes. They're like, oh, God, you know, that's a privileged position to have. Fine. You know, you can think what you like. But I tried to, you know, I tried to remain open to other ideas and update things. But I probably am a gradualist, I think, if you want to, like, label me. I, I probably, I, I probably do my inclinations probably are towards gradual reform and it does me essentially i suppose what i would imagine myself being pilloried for is that this looks like a kind of cl classic gradualist position or the logical end position of it which is that you go oh revolution is a little bit distasteful Oh, you know, look, I am, I do agree that there are some inequalities in society, but I don't have the stomach for violence. It, uh, it, it just isn't my cup of tea. I, it's so messy. Rapid reform. Can we not just slowly part and, and by three or four gener in three or four generations, things will look a lot better. I promise you. Now, I understand why that makes people want to vom and the problem with this is if i have the main character essentially wanting to the well the main antagonist having set this up to kind of foment revolution and bring down the monarchy and then the protagonist is in opposition to them the story is essentially going to be that the monarchy is going to seem to say, look, the monarchy is... It's kind of almost like an inoc an ideological inoculation because it's saying the monarchy's bad. Look, we get that. Look, we've seen that. And, and and this monarch has gone round and kind of had a... and seen all the bad things that the monarchy does. And they're probably pretty realising now that they'd like some reform. But not like this. Not with everything torn down. Not allowing the nation's enemies to come in and plunder it and take over. That's my worry that what the story ends up being is an apology for the monarchy. And it's saying, look, monarchies can be good or bad. You just have to have the right ruler. You just have to have a good king. And I don't believe that. I mean, you've got to follow the story honestly where it goes. And if that's what leads to the best story, I'm kind of up for that. But I just wonder whether I'm falling into some... And this is maybe the problem when you create tropes right that you fall into some ideological traps that tropes are not without political baggage and the real danger here is that i end up telling a story that doesn't really fit with the kind of story now, now look a, a, a novel should have i think an ideological the dialectic of fiction should allow us to create all these different opposing ideologies and, and ideas and characters who believe different things and i, th I don't think a novel Personally, I don't think a novel is a success if it just has one political message. That's just a piece of propaganda. A poem can probably have one political message. It can be a you know univocal. 
It can be monovocal. It can just say a thing, make a persuasive argument. But the whole point of novels is it's a collaboration of a chorus of voices and a lot of them singing in counterpoint to one another. And if you don't include that, then I don't think you should be in the business of writing novel length fiction because there's it's just not the you're not using the art form in a way that's interesting. I think you should always be challenging yourself. I think you're a really successful novel, one that lives should have ideas and implications that escape you. It should have characters telling tales against you. It should have revelations that you discover later. All of those things are really important and they're why I write. So, God, this is a long way to go, but that seems to me to be a problem. I don't want the antagonist, if I do this, to, you know, the protagonist essentially has inadvertently been acting as the agent of the one ultimately behind the conspiracy. Someone who is quite willing, because this creates a real dilemma, because they go there going, I'm going to kill them. I know that this is the person responsible now for ultimately responsible for this conspiracy. They're the last person. I am going to kill them. Maybe I once loved them. Maybe their blood relative or a romantic partner or someone I trusted. But there is nothing they can say to me that would is going to stop me from killing them. You know, maybe they're not physically powerful, so we know they're not going to be able to stop them that way. And they're thinking, I'm not going to allow myself to be talked out of this. There's nothing they can say to me that is going to stop me from killing them. And then they get there and the person reveals, who do you think it was who resurrected you? And then reveals, I wanted this because we can't have a monarchy in this country anymore. It's corrupt. And you have wiped out yourself and all the all, all the different rival bases of power. There's now going to be a power vacuum. Our neighbours are ready to rush in and take over. But there's also revolutionary groups who are going to start rising up. The last person you need to kill is me because I'm the own. I'm the final, le- like legitimate source of old power. And of course, it's not really legitimate; it's illegitimate. And they say, "Look, I, if you won't do it, I'm quite happy to kill myself." By the way, so you know, you you if you don't do anything, you're still stuffed because I'm going to kill myself. But at least you can kill me, right? You know, it's kind of you know it has. It's not entirely. It dissimilar to the end of seven right it has that same energy to it maybe this character has already written a confession to being the ringleader behind the assassination um so they, they, they have like said look there's no there's no way of reversing this now and it's they brought kind of the and they and and the whole business has brought infamy and has discredited the monarchy is going to be the ultimate the ultimate result or, or you know maybe something similar. i don't know something like that but, but maybe this person wants to be remembered as a valiant martyr but but maybe they don't maybe they deliberately have done this because they want them themselves to be remembered in a way that it was shameful and they they feel that that's their sacrifice is that nobody will know they were behind this. And I don't know what the way... Of, but that seems to me like, as an end of the kind of like three quarters of the way through the story, that seems like a really... I don't know what the res- resolution of that dilemma is. I don't know how you move into the final act. But that seems to me really exciting. 
that seems to me like a really exciting sticky surprising the danger is if they're too cackling then the story is really just about how it's a it's 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 the story of a lot of hollywood movies where the baddie in superhero movies wants social justice you know like but are going about it in the wrong way because they're pushing too hard too fast and innocent people are getting killed and look i i sort of feel that in a I certainly don't want to write a story that's like going terrorism is is actually all right because it's the only way people will listen. I don't want to like write a story that's like legitimizing the murder of citizens and the murder of children. I I don't like or believe in violence as a political tool wherever it's wherever it's avoidable, you know. And I I know people sort of pillory that and think that's that pacifism is a is a lazy thing and and it is to a certain extent look I, i'm I, I don't deny a squeamishness informing that partially i don't deny a kind of cowardice informing that that the difficult you know real kind of conscientious objection real pacifist resistance is like monks self-immolating <laughs> to protest the vietnam war that's super hardcore um it's people getting locked up it's people getting beaten it's people getting shot to and you know people going out to be medics in war zones it's all of those things right it's people losing their liberty and and i'm not doing those things which i think are the things you sort of have to do if you're committed to liberation in a pacifistic way right like the 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 choices then left to you and the tools left to you are really horrible and dire like it's and and to ask that of other people is gosh anyway i'm kind of going on a tangent i suppose i'm but i'm for good reason right it's not that i want to write a story that's a prescriptive like moral laundry list of things i think the reader should think i just if I'm going to write this tropey story, it's, I don't mind tropes. It's not that I don't mind writing pulp, but I just want to make sure I'm not writing, and and, and I'm not, also not trying to like go. How can I make something? I've talked about this before, but this idea of writing in a way where you're trying to avoid pitfalls rather than find treasure where you go I don't want to make a mistake I want to write something non-problematic oh gosh oh gosh no 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 and you kind of end up just creatively constipated it's not that I'm just thinking these things over and going how can I make this interesting and just like how can you make it cool like the story of Doctor Doom for example not I don't want to get too sidetracked but I am Victor Von Doom has got like a cool development as a character where like the 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 basic story is he his mum dies when he's young and that sort of like starts his feeling of like vengeance he ends up going to i think it's like duke university he make meets reed richards there and becomes really competitive with him 
is engaging in kind of forbidden kind of time travel experiments, I think to try and go back and save his mum before she died to prevent her death. And Reed Richards in most of the retellings kind of like notices that uh, Victor Von Doom has has made some calculation errors before he fires up his kind of time traveling experiment or whatever it is. And Doom is too, Dr. Doom is too arrogant to listen. And, I, and of course, then the machine blows up. And in the original story, it's like scars Dr. Doom's face, hideously scarred. And he survives, but he ends up making his metal mask to kind of cover his horrifically scarred face. And then like later iterations did a really cool thing where actually, and this is what I mean about just like taking a trope and like fiddling with it. Actually, it turns out, in, in retellings, Doctor Doom didn't get horrifically scarred. He got like a tiny facial scar. But he's such a perfectionist. He's so pathologically jealous that to him, he was hideous. So we don't see his face. We assume that he was sort of horribly disfigured. But then that was untrue and then later writers developed it again so that was true but then Doctor Doom forged this mask this iron mask and he took it he put it on having forged it in this kind of flurry of self-loathing he then put it on before it had cooled you know like a hot pizza um Doctor Doom was wearing iron masks before they were cool, literally and figuratively, and um, and because of that, he he burnt his own face, and so he ended up being horribly scarred. But at his own hand, because of his vanity, and, and each of those just takes, you know, what starts off as quite a you know, a tropey but kind of like not that interesting story. And it just twists and twists. And it's not about making it like, it's not about going, oh, you know, do we think like facial disfigurement making that a, a villain trait is a bit problematic? You know, should we be mocking people for that? Do we want to, isn't that ableist and horrendous? And like, which it, you know, in, in lots of ways it is. Uh, although there are plenty of Marvel superheroes as well who've got, unconventional looking faces who are really lovely and cool but my point being they just take that story and twisted it and twisted it a couple of degrees and made it in my view a lot cooler as a villain origin story and look anyway i accept that my suggestion here may not be the ultimate way to go for the, uh, the story but it's a working hypothesis to me that there's this mastermind who wants the protagonist to be killing everyone including themselves ultimately because they're using them as an agent of taking down the monarchy and they want to do it and they can't get to their co-conspirators themselves because trust is broken down and they they're not very powerful either themselves they're not personally very powerful I don't know who that person would be. Maybe the kind of mage character, 
they might have the abilities to do it. And so maybe, you know, it would be very interesting if the protagonist has encountered them before and not killed them. So we've kind of written them out of the suspects. That's one possibility. Anyway, um, is the dark twist before the final act. And so the idea that the, you know, the former conspirators now suspect each other of turning against each other, something especially credible if the protagonist is, is you know, working through them, bumping them off one by one, means that we can justify some of these who sent you moments where they capture the protag rather than immediately attempting to kill them. But they want to keep the protag's existence secret because the knowledge that they were part of a conspiracy to kill the rightful ruler who now seems to be back alive is not something they want leaked. It's not something they want out there. So, uh, I mean, what if the this admiral character ultimately had the protag shackled on the roof and used a giant lens from a telescope to focus the sun's rays. So as the sun rises, the heat is focused on the protag, maybe moving up their leg and they sort of begin to melt and they're using it to interrogate them. That could be a cool time-pressured scene. Not sure how the protag will get out of it, maybe melting and slipping the cuffs, although I suppose that doesn't really sound like it requires ingenuity or skill on their part. And it's something that maybe should be obvious to the character burning them. Maybe on the roof we see small dragons tearing the, apart the carcass of another of the Admiral's political enemies. Someone chained up, maybe initially alive. That could be interesting. I suppose this whole section will hinge on where it comes in the plot and what the protag learns. I don't think the Admiral can be the first person they face, just because they seem quite competent and because it's a different location. Um, maybe they'd have to stow away or sneak aboard an airship to reach this island then when they kill the admiral the sky docks are shut down and like i said suggested before the protag has to stage an escape maybe ultimately just jumping off the island and splatting on the ground because they can survive a massive fall like that maybe the admiral could be maudlin you know given to drink maybe they resist the protag but they're sentimental they listen to old music and, and weep they pine for the old days their lost comrades and the rigors of the war have clearly damaged them that could make the Admiral maybe have an element of of sympathy, you know, that we send people to war and it does things to people. You know, they're emotionally labile, I think is the psychological term. Part of the Admiral perhaps longs for destruction. Part of them longs for the kingdom's destruction. Maybe the this conspiracy and the plan did not go as they hoped. You know, the old glories have not returned. They've realised that they never will. And they think that we should just burn it all to the ground and start again. But they should definitely fight with the Trident. That's something that I think is just cool. The Admiral's house, maybe it could be somewhat neglected. Maybe the it's you know partly been taken over by their these drakes now. I I, I could use that idea I had in the original episode that, that that you know it could be a hot house. There's you know heating and moisture and thick canvas curtains to keep it artificially humid and orchids growing amongst them and and, and then the 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 drakes sort of sleeping and feeding in this sort of weird humid almost tropical house or maybe not i don't know whether that fits this character maybe save the orchids thing for another character i, I like it but maybe it doesn't fit here it might be too much the house could be mostly empty save for the drakes i like the idea of the protag sneaking in then finding themselves stalked by a miniature dragon which we don't even know exists as a thing as readers until this point. Perhaps the Admiral's house could be, even be a grounded airship, you know, the gondola of the Admiral's old flagship set into the hillside, supported by struts and with a brick structure built around it. That might be a little on the nose, but could be cool. The Admiral should have 
I think, the, the clearest idea of the nation's external enemies. The Admiral has seen things, terrible things, that maybe suggest why one would be willing to usurp a, a monarch who didn't, who seemed reluctant to deal with them, who's a bit more of a dove. Some otherworldly power, perhaps. Perhaps the deity or force responsible for resurrecting the monarch. You know, a force the lead conspirator has done a deal with or entreated. I, I've got to admit, like at this stage, I've come up with a lot of stuff and I don't actually know. I'm going to have to leave this to bake. I, I, I feel a bit stumped with this one. It's less of a clear character than the mother Nidus spider uh, spider abbess kind of thing. It, I, I, I feel like it's a bit less evocative as a character than she was. I feel there are some gaps that maybe the plot is going to flow into. I think sometimes I write something and they, these gaps exist. Uh, you're talking to R.J. Barker about this uh, last episode was really interesting, and he was talking about how sometimes there's a a bit that doesn't quite feel right or feels like it's got a gap. Uh, or like almost like a socket i imagine it and then suddenly you find the thing that the shape for it and it's almost like you planted it there for later on i don't know but i think i feel like some of the issues are places where i'm just running into the limitations of planning versus writing i guess the other issue is last time the character didn't really take shape for me until i started committing to names you know that's what i did didn't i, I did a list of specifics and that's what Moorcock mentioned, actually, that in a way action is secondary to imagery. What's the imagery of this place? The coherent leitmotif strung through it. So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, the obvious things are kind of like I, you know, wonder and clouds and emptiness and gantries. I love clanking metal, metal gantries, maybe lightning, lightning rods, airships floating in the docks, these berths that stretch out into mist and ships moored, moored there, large and small. Um, some maybe that are like almost like villages in themselves, like lots of different ships kind of tethered together to make these huge floating colonies with great canvas gas bags above them. And some that suggest whole other worlds and nations that we won't see in this story, but that give us a hint that this drama is really only part of a larger world. One ship could be a travelling theatre with a stage at the front and a curtain that pulls back. That could be the ship that the protag sneaks aboard to get here. You know, I'm, I'm imagining beautiful airships like trading caravans, you know, ships with collapsible canvas wings, vast fortified iron ships, you know, because that can't exist in the real world because there's an obvious reason why you can't have gigantic ironclad sky ships. But maybe something has been invented. Maybe not something this nation owns even. Not all the technology has to be completely dominated by this one nation but you know some magic has been created that allows for very heavy things to be turned into airships perhaps see it's part perhaps it's partly to do with the mages you know perhaps partly to do with resources plundered from elsewhere but it allows this whatever this technology is it allows this vast freedom and maybe some of this air travelers made this particular monarchy rich you know this is a thriving trading hub and the port authority are making a killing in taxes and import duties I don't know, maybe next session I, I, I could brainstorm some of a few magic systems or some kind of rules for the flight for these ships or something like that could spark something useful for why the monarch was killed and what the stakes are. Although I want to be careful that I'm not just spiralling out into stuff that is really, really, really only background. But this place, this island that is the Admiral's domain, I think for all its corruption should be wondrous and beautiful. A place above the dirty world, shining, cold and glorious, a kind of false heaven winged emblems everywhere like fistsfuls of knives a kind of beautiful alternate republic 
an enclave within the kingdom. Maybe this place is called something as simple as Nebula. And there are arches that greet you as you enter. You float through these kind of rings or arches as you approach the docks. What the navy have these sort of artificial wings that they they don that they can wear? You know, canvas stretched over light wooden flat frames that allow them to fly. Maybe some kind of motor makes them flap. It would be cool to have actual false angels patrolling the streets or flying around. They, you know, they wouldn't work in real world physics, but we could find some reason that it does here. Maybe the inside of the island is hollow and open at the bottom and this is, there's this vast void in which the dragons roost, the drakes. The, the, the metal gantries could surround and crisscross this big hollow underneath. I certainly like the idea of the protag being held over an incredible drop. Though, of course, it wouldn't kill them to fall, so maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe we have a scene with something half-built over a drop, you know, wooden scaffolding. I like the idea of things in any fantasy or sci-fi or made-up world, you know, being in the process of being constructed. We often see finished buildings, but I like the idea that we're seeing a world that is changing. I like the idea of this wooden scaffolding and then a, a drake busting up through the wood, shattering it. So the name Nebula works for me for now as a placeholder, a place of purity, loyalty that sees itself in a way as the true kingdom, the pride of the nation. Maybe it's ready to break away and secede if it can't conquer anyway. It's almost like a nation state. So the Admiral fights with a trident and one or more house cat sized drakes that breathe. Well, it could be fire, but I could mix that up if we wanted. Could be acid or could be ice, could be lightning. Lightning is nicely is nicely on the theme. Lightning drakes, storm drakes. That would be cool. And they can breathe. That was me doing a lightning noise. That's how excited. You can tell I'm excited when I do a not very convincing lightning sound effect. You know, the protag has to get up into... So, so you know, the arc of this thing in terms of just the, the mechanics of it is the protag has to get up into Nebula because it's in the sky, locate the Admiral, shake the Admiral d down for info, kill them, then escape. But it doesn't go as easily as that, of course. I still feel the Admiral needs one final twist, some extra power or quirk or unexpected boon. Because at the moment they just don't... Maybe the Admiral's a child. Maybe somehow really young. Maybe one half of the Admiral is smoke or cloud. Somehow they've been touched by the gauzy magic of the sky. Maybe the Admiral is the master of some particular school of magic we've encountered in the Academy. They can channel lightning through their trident or the winds or conjure clouds. I don't know. I feel, I feel like they just need one extra little bit of thing to make them powerful or cool or whatever. So we've got perfection, a heaven, and this broken figure at the centre of it. Bitter at what they see as a society failing up to live up to the standards they were taught to fight for. Bitter at the hypocrisy. So they wanted to be part of a revolution of purity to save the nation from itself, but their co-conspirators never really believed in that. And now they feel like they've replaced one evil with another. Maybe, or maybe something else I'll think on that. Like, these sort of ideologues aren't necessarily that cool to encounter on the page. You know, this damn world kind of brooding ideologues. I think they're just kind of, if you're not careful, they're just kind of living propaganda dispensers. Maybe the Admiral's kind of funny and cool. You could be a, a bad, like an objectively bad person, but but is at home with it.
that could be that's okay as well maybe the monarch's return catches them completely off guard but now they want to know how to use this they maybe to them you know they overpower our protag and now they see this as an opportunity maybe they're excited because they realize that they've got the jump on something who sent you what's going on it was x wasn't it and in naming something of course they give our protag a good clue of who to approach next I don't really want to write a kind of grim, dark, looking look at this sickening world style character. Maybe that's the ethos of this person's domain, but they themselves might be much more pro- pragmatic. And really, like, like you know, ultimately, we only care about them as an obstacle, an info dispenser for the protag. It might be that the protag heads up there with heat on them, trying to escape someone already on their tail, so the pressure could be building from both sides. So I think I'm gonna. This is something I'm gonna leave to bake for now. I certainly like the idea of the dragons and the trident and some kind of encounter and I I do like the idea of that kind of clean pure cold metallic wing motifs of nebula this is a kind of place of pride and purity in its own mind I think that feels to me like a nice just for now I feel that feels like a nice way of you doing this look I'm I, I, I think for now I can work on it and fill it a bit more in a bit more when I come back to laying down a plot skeleton I think that's as much as I need to do for now I'm not a natural plotter and I can feel myself as I'm talking to you getting a bit antsy you know I want to actually write some prose to get a sense of how this story might feel rather than just doing a big Wikipedia entry on it which I I feel sometimes is like infinitely deferring what I have to do, right? It's like during the Apollo missions when they were constantly doing rounds of tests and then being unsure and doing ordering another batch of tests and eventually, I can't remember who it was, said, if you want to go to the moon at some stage, you have to go to the moon. <laughs> I think at some stage I have to go to the moon with this and that stage is approaching at least sending a a monkey to the moon to go into orbit or something. I'm going to have to start doing my little carpet swatch, doing doing a proof of concept, seeing if I can actually turn any of this into prose. I'm going to have to at least do a test run of a page or something. What I think I'll do next time is just bang through a few flavour lists, um character names place names cool artifacts so really just a kind of miscellany of images and stuff the sort of interesting opposites that Moorcock was talking about getting some of these images and just ideas and and randomness really so I'm not planning these I don't even know where where I'm going with them I'm just following my own advice as well when I list character names and just getting some texture and specifics because I think that oh the brain gloms onto specifics because that's how we perceive the world. We're not in abstracts but in specifics. Then after that I can create a plot outline just using either the four-part pulp model he mentioned or some something else. But that seems like it will be enough for now. Then we can think about actually jumping in and getting some words down. Uh, anyway, look, look, I realise I haven't created the full cast of antagonists yet. That's still something I'll need to do, but I'm just not sure I need to do it all before I start writing. I'm not sure of anything, really, but what I'll do is I'll just create some name lists, find some images I like, and then we can do a little bit of a plot skeleton and then consider our first scene. 
the first scene that I write may not be the first scene, but we'll see. Like, sounds pretty ad hoc, I know, but we'll see. I, I, I'm figuring this out as I go, and I definitely can feel the itch of wanting to dive in. That may be anxiety, but I'm enjoying talking about it with you. Um, but I think we'll build a few random wells of flavour stuff first, do the plot skeleton, so when I start writing I can attempt, I hope, if I'm going to follow the suggestions of other people and not just revert to my own defaults, the idea is going to be, after maybe just doing a test, to write the first draft at white hot speed as fast as I can, not going back. Accepting that I might junk the whole thing, but just to get it down. Okay, that's the lot for this episode. I hope that was vaguely interesting for you. Um, I feel very out of my depth doing this, but I think that means I'm probably pushing in the right direction. If you like the show, you can support me by dropping uh, me a few beans to my coffee page. That's uh, ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. Thank you so much to those of you who've done that. It's amazing, actually. Since I've started doing these episodes, since I've started posting regularly, I've had loads of messages and loads of support um, through the coffee page. And I just want to say I'm really grateful. It's incredible. And it's what is allowing me to justify, you know, putting aside work to make sure I'm getting you at least one episode a week, uh, if not two. And I'm recording, a, I'm recording another episode today, actually. And I've got another one that I'm recording later in the week. And I'm hoping to get another episode out this week. So thank you, because with all that support, I just feel like I can go, OK, I'm going to be prioritising this. And I just really appreciate it. And I'm so glad that you're digging what I'm doing. And, you know, if you have any questions, suggestions, thoughts or praise or indeed constructive feedback, which I've used in the past, I, I can't say I always enjoy it in the moment, but sometimes I need to hear it. So thank you for that as well. Um, you know, why not drop me a line by popping to my website, timclapart.co.uk and clicking the contact me button. Links for both those things are in the show notes. I'd love to hear from you. And if you're on Twitter, I'm Tim Clare Poet on Twitter as well. My relationship with social media is complex, but it is always lovely to hear from listeners. Phew, that's it. Thank you for listening. Take care. And I wish you a wonderful week of writing. <laughs>